Thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for the privilege of having your word, which is so clear, not only about what you have done, but what you will do in the future and what you are doing now in the present. We ask, Lord, that as we study this very solemn and important lesson tonight, that your Holy Spirit will be with us. Help us to understand and more importantly, help us to take what we learn and apply it to our own personal life. We thank you once again for the promise of your presence. And we thank you for the privilege of coming and speaking to you personally in prayer. We know you will answer because we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get into our lesson. In this lesson, we will study the meaning of Revelation 17's great harlot. The story is not pretty, but it must be told. And I'm getting the little ring here. We're going to have to do a little bit of adjusting there, Johnny. In our analysis, we will find that the harlot represents the same end-time power as the little horn, the beast, and the man of sin. But before we can understand what the harlot means, we must go back to the Old Testament and examine an episode which forms the backdrop for our present study. And before we get into that Old Testament backdrop, it's necessary, first of all, to deal with uh, the issue of how many groups there will be at the end time uh, in the book of Revelation. And that's why you find the subtitle, Two Groups at the End. And we'll go through this quickly because I'm sure that you read it. And uh, so we'll just basically fill in the blanks and not say much more about it. Revelation 14, verse 1, speaks of a group of people who have what? The name of the Lamb's Father written on their forehead. In contrast are the small and great, rich and poor, free and I want you to remember that terminology because later on we're going to come back to it. Who receive what? The mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. Notice the seal of God is only on the forehead. The mark of the beast is on the forehead or in the right hand or on the right hand. Number two. By the way, how many groups in that number one? How many marks? Two. Number two. Revelation 6, 14 to 16, describes the second coming of Jesus. At this time, the kings of the earth, the great men, the, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and free. Do you notice the similarity in terminology to what we just read? Are these describing the same scene? Yes. Hid themselves in where? in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and cried for the rocks to fall upon them. In contrast are those who have the what? The seal of God on their forehead. How many groups do you have at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7? Two. In chapter 6 are those who have the mark of the beast. In chapter 7, the first few verses, you have those who receive what? The seal of God. Yes, Harold. Well, uh, the preposition can be translated in or on. And so that's why you have the difference in translation. I'm not sure that it really makes that much difference. Uh, in would be that it's a little bit more <laughs> inside. 
but we're going to find that that's the case anyway, uh, because uh, it deals with the law of God being written in the mind. A little bit later we'll see that. Okay, do you see uh, the importance of number one and number two? How many groups? Two. two groups. Those who have the mark of the beast and those who have the seal of God. Those who have the mark of the beast are going to cry for the, for the rocks to what? Fall on them, and, and they're going to hide in the caves of the earth. While those who have the seal of God are not going to do that. Number three. In Revelation 6, we find, actually Revelation 6, we find that it ends with a question. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? In other words, when that day of wrath comes, who's going to uh, be able to stand and be firm? Well, the fact is, immediately afterwards, an angel is seen rising from the east, who has the seal of the living God. The four angels are commanded to hold the winds until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. When the winds are released, the devastation of Revelation 6, 14 to 17 takes place. Basically what we have here is uh, you have a description of the wicked who hide in the caves and cry for the rocks to fall on them. But in contrast are those who are able to stand. Because chapter 6 ends with the question, The great day of his wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? The answer is in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Those who have the seal of God will be able to stand. Are you with me? Okay, let's go now to... Yes, uh, yes. Actually, actually, you're not going to be... The only way you're going to be able to know if a person has the mark of the beast or the seal of God, particularly the seal of God, is by their behavior. We're going to find that in the last section of the lesson. However, I do believe, I do believe that the mark of the beast will be some identification method which is external because uh, they're going to control buying and selling. And in order for that, you have to have some card or some microchip or some way of identification uh, where they can control buying and selling and they can control who is following what the civil powers are telling people to do. Uh, but we'll come to that later. We're going to deal with the seal of God and the mark of the beast. If you study the lesson, towards the end of the lesson, uh, it deals with uh, the two contrasting signs. But that's a good, uh, good comment. Um, the fact is the seal of God is going to be seen in the behavior. It's not going to be a tattoo that people have on their foreheads. Um, the Bible makes that clear. Yes. Yes, um, the, the preposition can be translated in or on, and uh, it's translated in in the Old King James and on in most modern versions, so, um, you know, it doesn't really, when we see what it represents, it really doesn't make that much difference, whether it's in or on. Yes, it's uh, later on in the lesson. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that uh, particular part is uh, later on in the lesson. We have a whole long section at the end of the lesson on what God places on the forehead, yes. It also described that the people didn't put that mark there, but God put that mark. Yes, that's true. That's very important. See, the other thing is, is that the people can see it, you know, because it was at the, at the, you know, because they had a rapture that means the people at, that didn't believe before, and so now they're getting their opportunity to believe. But, yeah, um, that, that's Tim LaHaye's version. Yeah. Uh, but as we've already mentioned, and we'll have a whole lesson on this, um, the Bible does not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. See, there was a woman in there who didn't believe, and she actually had abortion and all these wonderful things. Yeah. Well, then later she came to believe, and she found, and that's when, you know, they said, oh, I can see you have the... Yes, yes. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Nice fiction, isn't it? Yeah. 
Uh, you see, people watch uh, Left Behind and the other series, uh, the other books in the series, I guess there's 14 books or something, and they believe that this is actually biblical. This, this, these are novels, folks. They, they, uh, they do not study prophecy in a disciplined way such as we have done here. Uh, they're fiction. Uh, they're, they're not fact. Uh, they're not biblical. If, if uh, you've understood everything that, anything that we've said here, you realize that this is not biblical because the Antichrist already arose in history and it received a deadly wound and its deadly wound is going to be healed, is in the process of being healed and it's going to rule again. Remember we studied the man of sin? Uh, you know, he was already in existence in the days of Paul wanting to show up, wanting to appear, but there was a restrainer of the Roman Empire which would not let him manifest himself. But when the Roman Empire was taken out of the way, then the little horn arose to power and the beast was given the throne and the authority and the power of the dragon beast, which represents Rome. Remember that? And uh, this beast and this little horn uh, has two stages of existence. Uh, th that's a disciplined study of prophecy because we go and we study the text and we allow the text to tell us what is going to happen. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's nice uh, uh, to tell a story like they tell because it sells lots of books and it's really exciting, you know, uh, good, good Hollywood dramatics, but that's not the way it's going to happen. Okay, let's go to the Old Testament background. Yes? Are you able to summarize that for us this <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yes, very briefly. Um, I have I have a two-hour session that I did dis discussing the uh, cosmic chariot of Ezekiel chapter one. It's very symbolic language. Um, you know, for example, you find lightning. Uh, it says that the angels move like lightning. That's the lightning, the movement of the angels. Uh, it says that the angels are filled with eyes. This represents the fact. Yeah. Uh, the, the eyes represent the fact that uh, uh, the angels are wisely uh, directing all of the events of planet Earth. The four heads uh, that when they move they see in all directions represents that they have control over all of the events on the four corners of the Earth. Um, the rainbow, of course, over the throne represents that the door of mercy is still open because the rainbow represents God's mercy if you look back at the experience after the flood. Uh, so when you interpret each one of these symbols in the light of what they represent in the Bible, uh, you know that this isn't just some uh, UFO, uh, as some people like Eric Van Daniken said a long time ago in Chariots of the Gods. Uh, you know, you realize that you're dealing with different kinds of symbols, and when you put all the symbols together, you know that this is simply God's throne that is moving uh, to the Jerusalem temple to perform a work of judgment. Uh, so I hope that'll help a little bit. Um, the, the basic point, folks, is to interpret the symbols. Why are they filled with eyes? What do eyes represent in the Bible? Yes, uh, the lightning. The, the, you see the scene there, the angels are moving like lightning. The four faces represent the four corners of the earth. They're in control of all of the events on planet earth. Um, the hands that are under the angel's wings are the hands of the one who is sitting, sitting on the throne. See, God directs the angels in, direct, in, in the movements on planet earth. And of course the rainbow represents the, the fact that do, the door of God's mercy is open. So when you put all of the symbols and you determine what they mean in scripture and you put them together, then you have a complete picture of what this scene is talking about. Okay, let's go to section number two, the Old Testament background, and we'll be able to go through this quickly. 
In Ezekiel 1, by the way, this is dated very precisely to the year 592 B.C. And Jerusalem, 592, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. In other words, this is taking place six years before Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. I didn't? Yeah, I finished four. Not totally, but um, enough said. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, Ezekiel 1, dated to 592 B.C., six years before Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. We have a symbolic, symbolic portrayal of God's throne moving from heaven. Do you notice it comes from the north? We already discussed that the north is where? Heaven, where God lives. That's where Lucifer wanted to take God's place. And where is this uh, uh, throne moving to? Where is it in chapter 10 and 11 of Ezekiel? It's in the Jerusalem temple. So it must have been moving from where? From heaven to the Jerusalem temple. Because in chapter 11 it leaves, leaves the Jerusalem temple. Because it's finished its work of judgment. Are you following me? So if in chapter 1 it's moving from the north and it's coming down. In chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, as we see, it's leaving the Jerusalem temple. It must mean that it went where? That it went from heaven to? To where on earth? To the Jerusalem temple. Because it can't leave the temple if it didn't go there in the first place. Are you with me? Okay, now let's go to number two. Well, actually, let's finish number one. Everything in this vision is in motion. There is a... Whirlwind. Wind moves, right? The angels, what? Wings are in motion. And God's throne has what? Wheels. And what are wheels for? To roll, to move. In other words, God's chariot throne in heaven is moving. Where is it moving to? It's moving to the Jerusalem temple. What is it going to do in the Jerusalem temple? It's going to perform a work of? judgment. It's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Is that clear in your mind? Now maybe Ezekiel 1 would be one of those prophecies we could study in our next series. Would you like to do that? Ezekiel 1? Quite an exotic uh, uh, vision. And unfortunately we can't really study all of the symbols. Number two. God's purpose in coming was to judge whom? Don't miss that point. He's coming not to judge the pagans, but he's coming to judge apostate Israel in Ezekiel 16 and by the way Ezekiel 23 also Israel is repeatedly called a harlot now isn't that interesting who's called a harlot Israel so if in Revelation you have a great harlot uh, that must represent uh, the Muslims <laughs> I don't think so because if here the harlot represents those who claim to be God's people Israel in Revelation Revelation picks up on this we'll see in many different ways it must represent apostate Christianity apostate spiritual Israel are you with me? now let's go to the note Israel became a harlot because she what? because she assimilated the pagan practices of the surrounding nations would that be true of the end time harlot? That she has lots of practices that she's adopted from the world that God has not given her? Absolutely. Number three. 
In Ezekiel 23:40, Israel is described as washing herself for her lovers and painting her eyes and adorning herself with, with ornaments. So is this uh, woman who represents Israel, this harlot woman, is she decked? Yes, she is decked. And that's important because in Revelation 17 we find another great harlot who is decked. Right? Now let's go to number four. Israel was participating in the what? Don't forget that word, abominations. Uh, the harlot of Revelation 17, is she filled with abominations? Hmm. Interesting. In Ezekiel, Israel is apostate. She's called a harlot. She's filled with abominations. She's all decked. In Revelation 17, you have a harlot. She's all decked. She's filled with abominations. All decked out, whatever. <laughs> you can tell, I don't know how, I don't even know the terminology. All decked out. <laughs> all adorned. Okay, now notice. Let's continue from where we got off track. <laughs> no, thank you, Rosalina, that's right. Okay, last part of number four. The greatest of these abominations was the act of worshiping the sun. Don't miss that point. And you say, how do we know it was the greatest? Very simple. Ezekiel chapter 8 is called the abominations chapter. And what God does is he shows Ezekiel an abomination that's being committed among God's people. And Ezekiel says, wow, Lord, that's pretty terrible. The Lord says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you a worse abomination than that. And so then God shows him another abomination that's being committed among God's people, or those who claim to be God's people. And Ezekiel says, wow, that's terrible. The Lord says, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to show you one that's worse than that. And then God shows him another abomination. And at the end of the chapter, the list culminates with about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces to the east and they were worshiping the sun. That is at the top of the list or at, at the end of the list. It's the climax of all abominations. It's the worst of all. If you read Ezekiel 8, the act of worshiping the sun. Now, let's go to the note. As we have seen, no, let's see. There is no note. Number five. <laughs> Shucks, I should have put a note there. <laughs> As a result of these abominations, God promised that the end has come upon the... Is there any place in Revelation where the end is coming from four corners? Oh. Do you suppose then that there's some connection maybe between Ezekiel and Revelation? Oh, I don't suppose. I know there is because the connections are too exact and precise. And so God promised that the end has come upon the four corners of the land. That is to say, destruction was about to come upon the whole land. Number six. Before destruction should come, it was necessary to place a mark on the foreheads of those who sighed and cried because of the abominations which were being committed in the city. Was everybody in the city apostate? No. Were the majority in apostasy? Yes. yes. 
But there was a group who was faithful to God. They sighed and they cried and they suffered as they saw the abominations which were being committed, primarily the worship of the sun god. And they cried day and night, like Lot did, according to uh, uh, Second Peter, you know, when he was in Sodom. He cried out day and night because of the evil behavior of the people who lived there. So, so you have a mark placed on the foreheads of, of the faithful remnant who sigh and cry. Now, there's no doubt now that this is related to Revelation. If you had any doubts before, there's no room for doubt now. Because this terminology is virtually identical to what we find in the book of Revelation. Now, let's read the note. Actually, let's read number six, and then we'll read the note. Before destruction should come, it was necessary to place a mark on the foreheads of those who sighed and cried because of the abominations which were being committed where? Not among the Philistines, not among the Babylonians, not among other nations, but among those who claim to be the people of God in the city. The note, please underline the fact that there was a faithful remnant in the apostate city of Jerusalem. There were those who grieved because of the abominations and cried out against them. Those who grieved were sealed on their foreheads and were protected from the wrath of God. The contrast in Ezekiel is between those who are committing the abomination of worshiping the sun and those who have the seal of God. Do you see that contrast? At the very end of chapter 8, it talks of the terrible abomination of those who have their backs to the temple and they're worshiping the sun towards the east. And then immediately in the next chapter, you have those who are sealed with the seal of God. The contrast is between those who worship the sun and those who have the seal. By the way, is this the same in the book of Revelation? Yes. You have in Revelation 13, 16, those who have the mark of the beast. And then in chapter 14, 1, you have those who have the name of God, where? On their foreheads. So I ask then, must the mark of the beast have something to do with the sun? It must, if you look at the parallel between Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, because in Ezekiel you have at the end of chapter 8, worshiping the sun, beginning of chapter 9, sealed on the foreheads. In Revelation you have those who have the mark of the beast in chapter 13, verse 16, which is at the very end of the chapter, and then chapter 14, 1, you have those who have the name of God written on their foreheads. They're the 144,000 who were sealed in Revelation chapter 7. Now, let's go to number 7. After the work of sealing was completed, the angels were to go through the city and what? Kill. And kill. You know, this is uh, hard to envision. But that's what the Bible says. They were not to let their eye spare, spare nor have any pity. pity. Let me ask you, had the door of mercy closed for the Jewish nation at this point? Yes. When the sealing ends... Has the door of probation closed for the city? Yes. Does probation close before the city is destroyed? I don't want you to miss this point. God doesn't just simply say, God, like a bolt of lightning out of clear blue sky, he comes and destroys Israel. Is there a judgment before? Is there a message of those who sigh and cry before? Yes. And then when the judgment is finished, Afterwards comes destruction. Do you know that God's system of judging is follows the same order as our system of jurisprudence in the United States? In the yes, in the United States. Well, all right, or vice versa. But anyway, our system follows the system of God. Ultimately, 
Paul is right. But now, let me, let me ask you this. Do we have an investigation of the case first? Yeah. Do we have a sentencing afterwards? Yeah. Is a sentence executed the same day that it is pronounced? No. Later on, you have the execution of the sentence. That's the way God operates. See, God came to judge. He gave everybody an opportunity in the city to hear the truth. Because Ezekiel is writing this in the year 592. In other words, Ezekiel, they had the prophecies of Ezekiel. They could read them. They knew that God was judging at their, that very moment. Now, when the judgment ended, sentence was pronounced. And then afterwards, of course, Nebuchadnezzar will find executed the sentence. Okay, now number seven, the last part. But they were not to come near those who had the protective mark. So the purpose of the mark is to what? Is to protect, to identify the faithful and to protect them from the destruction. Number eight, God promised Israel that they would drink and drain the what? The cup of horror and, and desolation. Remember that word, desolation. So you have abominations and you have desolation. Uh, uh, what was it that was in the cup, do you suppose? Is there a cup in Revelation? What does the cup have? It has the wrath of God. So did Israel drink the cup of God's wrath after the sealing? Is there going to be uh, the, the world drinking the cup of God's wrath after the end time sealing? Absolutely. Now notice number nine. After the work of separation was finished, the what? The glory. the glory of the Lord, known as the Shekinah. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. What mountain is that? That is the Mount of Olives. Now, I'm just going to throw this out. Uh, we're going to study it a little bit more closely uh, in our lesson on Matthew 24, which we'll uh, have on Saturday night. The first destruction of Jerusalem is very, very similar to the second destruction of Jerusalem. Dr. John was mentioning this right before class to me. Um, you know, here, the glory of the Lord comes to the temple to perform a work of judgment. When the work of judgment is finished, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and sits upon the Mount of Olives. And shortly after sitting upon the Mount of Olives, it stays there for a while, it ascends, and it goes back to heaven. You know, I find it very interesting that the Lord Jesus, who is the glory of God, according to John chapter 1, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the Shekinah glory. He came into the temple, and when they refused him, he left the temple and he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And then where did he go to sit? He went to sit upon the Mount of Olives, and what did he talk about? The destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Of course, there are many more parallels besides that parallel. So both destruction of Jerusalem uh, illustrate the same end time scenario. Now, uh, let's go to number 10. <coughs> Once the city and the sanctuary were forsaken by God, a horrible time of trouble ensued for Jerusalem with starvation, pestilence, and violence. Jeremiah's book of Lamentations describes this period. Incidentally, the book of Lamentations was written by Jeremiah for the Jews to sing as they were taken captive to Babylon. 
cookie. Yes. It, 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 the Book of Lamentations is what is known as kinameter in Hebrew. It's, it's a dirge. You know what a dirge is? It's a, it's a funeral song. The, the, the literary style, kinameter, and I'm not going to go into explaining what kinameter is, but it's particularly meant for lamentation. In other words, this, this book was sung by the Jews as they were ta being taken off captive to Babylon. And if you read the book, it describes vividly what happened in the city. Starvation, violence, uh, pestilence. I mean, the starvation got so bad that the mothers even ate their children. And by the way, this happened also with the second destruction of Jerusalem. Flavius Josephus tells us that. There was terrible pestilence. There was horrendous hunger. There was violence. Uh, children killed their parents for a morsel of food and vice versa, according to Josephus. Uh, it's terrible when the presence of God forsakes uh, the city. And at the end, when the presence of God forsakes the world, particularly the religious world, because we're dealing here with two destruction of Jerusalem, those who claim to be God's people, but were in apostasy. Number 10. Once the city and the sanctuary were forsaken by God, a horrible time of trouble ensued for Jerusalem. Starvation, pestilence, and violence. Jeremiah's book of Lamentations describes this period. Finally, the king of the Chaldeans. Who was that? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, and he had. Now, I want you to notice the similarity of the terminology in Ezekiel 9. Remember the, similar, the, the terminology in Ezekiel 9? It's almost identical here. So let me ask you, how was it that God destroyed Jerusalem? Who destroyed Jerusalem? Was it Israel? Was it God? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> we already studied this. It was all three. But who initiated the process? Israel, by rejecting God. And notice the terminology. He destroyed Jerusalem and he had no what? No compassion. Remember Ezekiel 9? A young man or virgin or on the aged or the weak. That's exactly what Ezekiel chapter 9 says. In this way, the what? Notice, the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. This was a disease that could not be cured. Okay, number 11. Israel would be judged by the law of the harlot. The kings would leave her what? Naked and bare. The nakedness of her? Of her what? Would be what? Uncovered. Uh, is that also true of the harlot of Revelation 17? There are just too many parallels for this to be a coincidence. Now, if Ezekiel is speaking about the apostasy of those who profess to serve God, but there was only a faithful remnant. What do you suppose that the uh, harlot represents in the book of Revelation? It must represent those who profess what? To serve God. But is there going to be a remnant at the end of time? Yes, there is. Number 12. One of the principal reasons for the destruction of Jerusalem, I hope you read these texts, they're interesting was that Jerusalem was breaking the what? The Sabbath. Did you read that verse? God says, if you break the Sabbath, the city will be lit with fire, and nobody will be able to put it out. So Sabbath breaking was what led directly to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. 
Ezekiel 20, 12 and 20 adds that God gave Israel the Sabbath as a sign that they might know that he was the Lord their God. Let me ask you, would they ever have been worshiping the sun if they had been keeping the Sabbath in honor of the true creator? Absolutely not. It would have been impossible. Because how could they keep the Sabbath that reminds them that there's only one true creator, the creator of heavens and earth, and still be worshiping the sun? You see, the Sabbath is the antidote for atheism. If the Sabbath had always been kept, there would be no atheist. How could there be an atheist if, if you keep the Sabbath? How could you be an atheist if you keep the Sabbath? couldn't. Because the Sabbath tells you that there's one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Number 13. The spiritual leaders of Israel were to blame in a great degree for the apostasy of the people and the resultant destruction. Jeremiah had this to say. The what? The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And what? The prophets prophesied by Baal. What was Baal? The sun god. And walked after things that do not profit. And incidentally, lest anybody think that I'm taking Jeremiah out of context. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Ezekiel. And Jeremiah is describing the same destruction of Jerusalem as Ezekiel was. It's within the same historical context. And so that's why we can use Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Because they're both speaking about the apostasy in Israel. Only uh, Jeremiah dwells on some issues that Ezekiel doesn't. He deals a lot with the apostasy of the priests and the prophets and the rulers and those who handle the law. In other words, they were the ones that led the people astray. And now notice number 14. But the people were also to blame. Were they not? Yes. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests, priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. Have you ever read in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says that many in the last days are going to come with itching ears? And they're going to pile up teachers that will teach them what they want to hear. That's the imagery that he's using. The itching ears means that you have an itch and so you get somebody to scratch. See? Your itch is to hear what you want to hear. And so, and so you say to a teacher, are you going to teach me what I want to hear? And he says, yes. Okay, come and scratch. That, that's the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using. That's, that's the, the symbology that Paul is using. And he says that they will pile up teachers who will teach them that it's okay to live according to their own lusts. And they will turn away their ear from the truth. That's what was happening in Jerusalem, folks. Now let's look at the perspective of Revelation 17. The first angel's message announces that the hour of God's judgment has come. Are we dealing with the end time here? Sure. What date are we dealing with here? 1844, as we studied. 1844. The hour of his judgment has come. Notice number two. The purpose of this assize is to judge thee the little horn and to give the kingdoms 
to the saints of the Most High. So the purpose of this judgment is not only to give the kingdom to God's people, but it's to judge whom? The little horn. And what was the little horn? Uh, did the little horn think it could change the law? Yeah? Did it persecute the saints of the Most High? You read Ezekiel, it says that God's people were being slaughtered. There was violence in the city against God's people. Very similar. Now, notice number three. Actually, the note. The number three is the note. As we have seen in our study of Daniel 7 and 8, the little horn claimed to represent the cause of God. Did it or didn't it? Did the little horn actually claim to do the biddings of God? Did it actually do the biddings of God? No. Beginning in 1844, the chariot throne of God moved where? Into the most holy place to perform a work of judgment against the apostate little horn. Is the little horn a, a professedly Christian system, according to what we've studied? Yes. And the purpose of this judgment is also to pronounce a judgment in favor of whom? Of the saints who sigh and cry because of the abominations that are being done. Now, I don't know if you read Daniel 7, but it's interesting that you also have God's throne and it's moving. It has wheels. And the angels are carrying the throne into the most holy place. Did you notice that? Does this have any relationship with the throne of Ezekiel? Yeah. Of course. There's only one difference. In the book of Ezekiel, the throne was going to the Jerusalem temple in the year 592 B.C. to judge apostate Israel and to pronounce a judgment in favor of God's people by putting a seal on their foreheads. Whereas Daniel is describing a judgment that is when? In the future, at the end time, when God is going to judge the world. In other words, he's going to do the same as in the days of Ezekiel, but it's not going to be for literal Israel. It's going to be for whom? For the whole world. Now, number four. Revelation 17 speaks about a great harlot who sits on many waters. This harlot has committed what? Fornication with the kings of the earth. Was Israel committing fornication with the kings of the earth? Read chapter 16. It even says in chapter 16 that, you know, normal harlots get paid for their services. If you read the chapter, God says about his own people, he says, but you paid the kings so that they would give you permission to go into them. <laughs> I mean, talk about apostasy. There was fornication, in other words, between Israel and the surrounding nations. Number six, the harlot has a cup full of her what? Did we find that word in Ezekiel? Yes? What was the greatest of all the abominations in Ezekiel that the Israel was committing? Sun worship. Do you suppose that uh, one of her abominations might have, must have something to do with the sun? Absolutely. We've studied this. Because the little horn thought it could change what? God's law. And which is the commandment that the Roman Catholic Church has claimed to change? The fourth commandment, the Sabbath. And which day has it established instead? Sunday. And what is Sunday? The day of the sun. 
So the devil doesn't care if you worship the sun or if you worship on the Sunday. In both cases, it's something that man has created for worship, which God didn't make for worship. And the majority of the Christian world thinks there's okay worshiping on Sunday. But they're doing the same thing as Israel was doing in the days of Ezekiel. They're disobeying God. You see, some people say, well, but didn't Jesus resurrect the first day of the week? Yes, he did. But the burden of proof is on uh, those who say that Sunday is the day of worship to show me one text in the New Testament where God explicitly says that now Sunday is holy and not the Sabbath. An explicit text that says that we're supposed to go to church on Sunday. An explicit text that says that we're supposed to keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Christ. Listen, there are only eight texts in the New Testament that speak about the first day of the week. Only eight texts that mention the first day of the week. Six of those texts simply state that Jesus resurrected the first day of the week. One of them actually says that the, that the Jews, uh, that the disciples were gathered in the upper room. And so some uh, pastors say, see, they were gathered in the upper room. They were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. There's two problems with that argument. Number one, the text clearly says in John 20, verse 19, that they were gathered in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And even more devastating to that idea is the fact that that evening, this is happening before Jesus appeared to the disciples, later the evening of the resurrection. You'll find that the New Testament, several of the gospel writers tell us that when they were gathered there, they still did not believe that Jesus had resurrected. So my question is, how can they be celebrating the resurrection if they didn't even believe that Jesus had resurrected? See, when you read the Bible carefully and not with an agenda, you have to be honest that the Bible does not enjoin the observance of Sunday. And somebody says, yeah, but what about, about the Apostle Paul, the meeting at Troas in Acts chapter 20? It says that they were meeting on the first day of the week. Yes, they were meeting on the first day of the week at night. So let's take a look at that. The Apostle Paul also said that the meeting went beyond midnight. You think I'm long-winded. Oh. <laughs> the Apostle Paul preached basically all night. And he preached so long that somebody, well, a young man, Eutychus, was sleeping in a window. Uh, evidently this was a second story. And he fell out. See, you have comfortable chairs to sit on so you don't fall out. <laughs> And then, of course, the Apostle Paul resurrected Eutychus. But no place does it say that this was a regular practice. In fact, if you read the text carefully, you'll find that the reason for that meeting it was a farewell for the Apostle Paul because the next day he left on a journey and he cried before he left because he knew that he wasn't going to see them anymore. This was not a regular weekly occurrence. This was an exceptional meeting. Everything says that it was exceptional. So to use this as saying all the apostles now were keeping Sunday on a regular basis is a total violation of what the Bible says. And the last text is in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and I'm going through uh, about an hour and 15 minutes of material real quickly and giving you the main points so that you understand this. Uh, you know, there it says, the Apostle Paul says, every first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. In other words, lay aside at home a certain amount as God has prospered you, so that when I come, I don't have to make collections. And so they say, see, they're supposed to lay aside, they're supposed to take their offerings to church on the first day of the week. Well, the fact is, the text doesn't say take it to church. 
The text says, lay it aside at home the first day of the week. Now my question is, if they were going to church on Sunday, why set it aside at home? The Apostle Paul would have said, take it to church and put it in the offering plate. So this idea that Sunday's the day in the New Testament is totally false. But it's been taught by tradition. And people simply believe it because they trust their spiritual leaders and many people don't even care. They say, well, you know, I was born in this church and I'm going to stay in this church until I die and, and you know, the Lord will have to figure out what he's going to do with me. Well, the fact is, if you have the light, you're responsible for it. And you have to be willing to obey it. Not because you have to, but because you love the Lord. See, if we really love the Lord, it'll be easy for us to obey him. I don't want you to get the impression, oh, I better keep the Sabbath or else I'm going to receive the wrath of God. <laughs> That's not the motivation. The motivation is we keep the Sabbath because we want to spend it with Jesus. And as, as a bonus, we're saved from the wrath of God. Now, there's a focus is not the wrath of God. The focus is spending the day with Jesus. Don't you think Jesus was marvelous in, in setting aside a whole day to be with us? I mean, do you enjoy spending time with the people you love? Yes? Oh, how about 24 whole hours? See, people say, oh, don't give me that Jewish yoke of bondage, the Sabbath. Oh, man, you can't go, you can't go shopping, and you can't go play football, and you can't do this, and you can't... What a miserable... Listen, folks, I'm so busy on Sabbath with my Lord Jesus that I don't have time to do any of those other things. That's why God set the day aside, because he knows that if we go shopping and we do all of these other things, it's distracting us from our only focus, which should be Jesus. Are you understanding me? In other words, the Sabbath is a day of love where Jesus wants us to spend 24 hours to refurbish our batteries and to say to Jesus, oh, how wonderful you are. You, were, you created us and then when we fell into sin, you redeemed us and then in the new earth and the new heavens, we're going to keep the Sabbath to remember that you restored us. Wow! What a tremendous day. But anyway, let's continue with the lesson or else we'll never finish. <laughs> So you have a harlot in Revelation, don't you? She, she commits fornication with the kings, just like in Ezekiel. Number seven. Six. Oh, the cup. Now we talked about uh, the harlot having a cup in her hand with the filthiness of her fornication, the abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. Number seven. This harlot is arrayed in purple and scarlet and what? And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Uh, is she all decked out? <laughs> See, I learn. She's all decked out, isn't she? Just like the woman in Ezekiel. Oh, maybe this says, has something to say about the way we should dress, too. Because God's woman is simply garbed with the sun. Natural. But we won't get into that right now. Number eight. When the four winds from the four corners of the earth are released. Did we have the four corners of the earth in Ezekiel? Yes, we did. The worldwide devastation of the tribulation will take place. In other words, the, the cosmos is going to be torn apart. It's going to fall apart when the winds are released. Number nine. Before the destruction comes, a powerful angel from the east is commanded to what? To seal the servants of God on their foreheads. Any relationship to Ezekiel? Obviously, yes. The purpose of this seal 
is to protect those who sigh and cry because of the abominations which are committed in the church. Number 10, as soon as the sealing process is over, the heavenly sanctuary is filled with what? With smoke. And no one can enter there until the seven plagues of the seven angels were what? Were completed. What does that mean that nobody's going to be able to go into the temple? Let me ask you, when, when the glory of God left the temple in the Old Testament, was there any longer any intercession for the Israelites? Any more forgiveness for sin? Any more intercession of Jesus for those who, were, who had apostatized from God? No. When the glory of God left, no one could take advantage of the sanctuary service. The sanctuary service was closed. Is this going to happen for the world? Yes. yes, the sanctuary service in heaven is going to close and nobody's going to be able to what? To go in until the wrath of God has been totally poured out. So what happened with Jerusalem in the Old Testament is going to happen on a worldwide scale at the end of time. By the way, how can we go into the heavenly sanctuary today? Jesus is interceding for us today and, and it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in the book of Hebrews. How, how, how can we enter the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is? He's up there, we're down here. By what? By, by prayer. Yes, by faith we can go in to the presence of Jesus into the sanctuary. But the day is coming when the sanctuary service is going to close and the words are going to be pronounced, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Do you know why it's going to be said? He that is filthy, let him be filthy, filthy still. Because they did not take advantage of the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's why they're filthy. And the time is coming when, the, when God is going to say, He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, there's a time coming when the door of probation for the world is going to close. Some people say, well, you know, how do you know that? Well, let me ask you. In the days of Noah, was there a door that shut? In several days that went by before the destruction came? Yes. yes. In the days of Lot, was there a door that shut before destruction came? Yes. With, uh, with the ten virgins, were there, was the, uh, did five of them go in with, uh, with the groom and the door was shut? Yes. And the other ones still have time to go and try to buy oil and come back? Obviously they weren't destroyed. They went and tried to buy oil and they came back and they knocked on the door. They weren't destroyed immediately. So this means that the door of probation for the world is going to close before destruction actually comes. And the door closes, the tribulation comes, and then Jesus comes. Now, let's continue here. Number 11. After the heavenly sanctuary service comes to an end, the plagues will bring devastation to the earth. Correct? There will be no mercy, because this is the wrath of God poured out. Full strength. The old King James says, without mixture, into the cup of his indignation. Did the harlot in the Old Testament have to drink the cup of God's wrath? Absolutely, yes. Who are the ones who are going to drink the cup of God's wrath? Those who have what? The mark of the beast. Are the plagues going to touch those who have the seal of God? Now, here's my question, folks. If God places the seal upon the foreheads of his people to protect them in the time of trouble, must that mean that they're going to be on planet Earth, Earth during the time of trouble, during the tribulation? Yes. Yes. Why would it place a seal of protection upon them if they were going to be gone? Are you with me? See, what the devil wants people to think is that, don't worry! You're going to have it easy here, and you're going to have it easy there. 
And those poor Jews, they're the ones that are going to suffer the tribulation. You know, in a certain way, uh, there's, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the Christian way of interpreting prophecy today, if you really look at it carefully. Number 12. There will be a group who will sigh and cry because of the abominations which are being committed. Where is this sigh and cry? Did you notice that? It's found in Revelation 18, verse 2. And he what? He cried mighty with, mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. Is there going to be an outcry against the abominations of Babylon? Yes, there is going to be, just like in the Old Testament. Number 13, the harlot will be hated by the kings, and they will what? Make her desolate. Did we find that word in the Old Testament? Yes, and what else would they make her? They will make her naked. Did we find that in the Old Testament? Yes. Now, what is the principle? The principle is that this happened locally and literally to the literal Jews in the Old Testament. But that's seen because symbolic of spiritual Israel on a worldwide scale at the end of time. Because the harlot in Revelation is not Israel in the Middle East. Because the Bible says that she sits on multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. She is a worldwide system. Which must mean that God's Israel is also what? Worldwide. worldwide. In fact, the separation of the righteous from the unrighteous is a worldwide separation. Because Revelation 14 speaks about Jesus on the cloud with his sickle. And it says that he's supposed to harvest the harvest, not of Israel, but the harvest of the earth. And then it says, harvest the grapes of the earth. In other words, the separation uh, uh, in literal Jerusalem represents the separation among those who profess to God's people on a worldwide scale. Is that clear in your mind? Raise your hand if it's clear. You're awful quiet tonight. Oof. What a lesson. Is that making sense? Yes. What, what do we need to understand in order to understand Revelation? The Old Testament. How can you understand Revelation without the Old Testament? You can't. I mean, there's a seal and there's four angels and there's a harlot and the harlot is going to be left naked and she's all uh, decked out and, and all these things. You, know, you say, oh, all of a sudden it appears in Revelation. Where does this come from? But when you have the whole Old Testament story, you know that what happened on a local scale is going to happen on a, on a worldwide scale, you know exactly how it's going to take place so that we can prepare. Now let's identify. Do you think it's important to know what the seal of God is? Yeah. Is it a matter of life and death for those who live in the end time? Yeah. Absolutely. Let's go quickly. Number one. We have already identified the mark of the beast as what? Yeah. As Sunday. The Roman Catholic Church itself tells us that it's its sign. And the little horn thought he could change what? Times and the law of God. If we keep the Sunday, we are accepting the authority of whom? Of the beast power who claims to have changed the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. Why do you suppose the devil hates the Sabbath so much? Who was the creator? So when you keep the Sabbath, who are you honoring? God. Who does the devil hate more than any being in the whole universe? Yeah. Jesus. The devil hates the Sabbath because he hates Jesus. Because the Sabbath points to Jesus. 
And that's why the devil has duped the Christian world into thinking that Sunday is the day. And what they're doing, many of them inadvertently, they're rendering honor to the power who claims to have changed the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. And that is the Roman Catholic papacy. Sad. Now, this being the case, what do you suppose the seal of God must represent? If the mark of the beast is uh, Sunday, then what must the seal of God be? It must be another day. Right? And by the way, do you know that Sunday and the Sabbath are exact opposites? Sunday is number one and the Sabbath is number seven. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Do you know what else at the end of creation week? You know, God made this wonderful world in six days. Kind of like an artist working. Some of you have heard this illustration in the Genesis series. Kind of like an artist working. You know, he works the first day and he puts the canvas, you know, and puts the staples around the frame of the canvas and puts some base colors. And at the end of the day, he looks, he says, oh, it looks good. And so the next day, he adds a few things to the canvas. And at the end of the day, he looks, he says, oh, it looks good. So the third day, he adds a few more things in the picture. And, he's, and at the end of the day, he looks, oh, it's looking, looking good. And so he keeps on adding things. Finally, when he finishes his work the sixth day, he steps back and he says, wow, very good. Let me ask you, is the picture finished? <laughs> yes and no. The work is finished, but the picture or the work of art needs to be signed so that everybody knows who made it. The Sabbath is God's signature of creation. In other words, after he works six days, he creates a seventh day and he says, Signed, God. Awesome. So when you're, when you're keeping the Sabbath, you're recognizing the mighty and powerful creator of the heavens and the earth. Yes, Dallas. You know, they say that uh, it's bad luck to sign a picture before you draw it. <laughs> yeah, just like it's uh, pretty risky to sign a check before you fill it out. <laughs> okay, number two. In Romans 4.11, the Apostle Paul uses the words what? Seal and sign interchangeably. In the Bible, they're used interchangeably. It doesn't matter whether you use seal or sign. It's the same thing. Number three. In Exodus 31.17, we are told that the Sabbath is a sign between God and Israel forever. And then it explains why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And some people say, see, it was made for Israel. I guess that would mean that, uh, that uh, marriage was made for Adam and Eve. Just because God gave the Sabbath to Israel doesn't mean that it's exclusively for Israel. Does it? You know what? I, I don't hear the churches saying that the tithe was made only for Israel. <laughs> oh, when you talk about the tithe, they say, the tithe is still binding. But God also gave the tithe to Israel. Does that mean that the tithe is only for Israel? No. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. Oh, so that means that the Ten Commandments are only for Israel. No. We can commit adultery, and we can kill, and we can steal, no. and we can have other gods, because God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. No. The fact that he gave them to Israel does not mean that he gave them exclusively to Israel. He gave them to Israel, and through Israel, 
they become ours. Because if we are Christ's, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Number four, the first angel's message calls upon people from every kindred, nation, tongue, and people to worship the God who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of water. What does the first angel call us to do? It calls us to worship whom? The Creator. In contrast, the third angel's message warns against worshiping whom? The beast. Now, don't miss this. First angel says worship whom? The Creator. If the first angel says worship the Creator, and the third angel says beware of worshiping the beast, it must mean that the beast is trying to counterfeit what? The work of the Creator. And what is the sign of the Creator? The true Creator. The Sabbath. So if the beast is implementing the opposite of worshiping the Creator, it must be another sign that points to the beast instead of pointing to the true Creator. Are you with me? Now, let's go quickly here. Our time is up. The fourth commandment directs us back to the creation story. Oh, no, we're number five, right? You cannot speak about worship without speaking about the Creator. And you cannot speak about the Creator without speaking about the Sabbath. It's impossible in the Bible. We are to work six days and rest on the seventh. Because God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, and blessed it, and made it holy. Did he do this before sin? Did God bless and sanctify and set aside the Sabbath before sin? So is it part of God's original plan for the whole human race? Some people say it's for the Jews. There was no Jew at creation. The word Jew comes from Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. So you can't say, can't talk of the Jewish Sabbath. The Lord is offended when you call his Sabbath the Jewish Sabbath. Never once in the Bible will you ever find the Sabbath called the Jewish Sabbath. You will always find it called the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Always. Without exception. It's the religious leaders today who call it the Jewish Sabbath. Okay, number six, the fourth commandment directs us back to the creation story in Genesis. After working six days, Jesus rested on the seventh day and what? And blessed it and sanctified it. Did God do the same thing at creation as what we have in the fourth commandment? Do you notice the three things? God rested, God blessed, and God made holy, it says in the fourth commandment. In Genesis it says God rested, God blessed, and God made it holy. Is, it, is the Sabbath of the fourth commandment the same Sabbath of creation? Yes. yes, it is. Note, the Sabbath is not a Jewish institution. It is a creation institution. It was renewed to the Jews, but not originally given to them. It originally had nothing to do with foreshadowing the death of Jesus on the cross, along with marriage. It is one of the two creation institutions. If marriage is still God's plan, why not the Sabbath? Number seven. In Revelation 14, 9 through 12, those who keep the commandments of God are placed in contrast with those who receive the mark of the beast. Did you notice that? Immediately after speaking about those who receive the mark of the beast, it says, but here 
are they who keep the commandments of God. So the ones who keep the commandments of God are in contrast to those who worship the beast. So the mark of the beast must have something to do with the commandments and the seal of God must have something to do with the commandments. Am I making myself clear? Isaiah 8 verse 16, the prophet is told, bind up the testimony. What else? Seal my law among my disciples. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, we find the following command to Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I don't know whether you notice this. Israel is then instructed to put God's word in their hearts. And then he explains what this means. He then tells them to bind them as a sign on their hands. That means it's supposed to guide their behavior, their actions, their works. And then to put them as frontlets where? Between your eyes. You know what the Jews in Christ they did? They had these little boxes called phylacteries. They still exist. You know, you can buy them over in, in shops in Jerusalem. You could, before you couldn't travel there anymore. But uh, they have these little rolls of parchment with little scriptures on them. And, uh, you know, they, they take these and they paste them on their forehead. You know, they walk with these phylacteries. That's what Jesus denounced in Matthew 23. See, because they walked on a sign of piety. Now, you tell me, how much good is it to have uh, something on your forehead that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Last I knew, that had to be in your mind. That isn't saying just hang little pieces of parchment on your forehead. He's saying that the law should be written where? In our minds. Not foreheads. See, it's the law that is identified with the forehead. Number 10. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 33, God promised to write his law in the mind. See, there's the forehead. And in the hearts of his people. And somebody say, well, that, God promised that for the Jews. This promise is not for the Jews only. Because the Apostle Paul cited the same promise for Christians. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds I will write them. And this is the new covenant. Because it's the book of Hebrews. In a beautiful messianic prophecy, Jesus is heard saying, I delight to do your will, oh my God. And your law is within my heart. Number 12. The fourth commandment is the only one which has all the elements of a seal. In order for a seal to be authentic, it needs to have three items of information. The name of the lawgiver, his office or title, and the territory over which he has authority. Of the Ten Commandments, only the fourth has all three items. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. There is his name. For in six days the Lord made, that's his title or his function, his office, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That is his sphere of rulership. This is the commandment which Satan hates the most because it identifies the only true God. As long as this commandment is kept, Satan, Satan's aspirations to be recognized as God are proven false. Satan hates the Sabbath because it points to Jesus as the creator. And Satan hates Jesus. 
Now, in the material for next time, you received a sheet that has uh, a picture of a tablet on it. I'm going to skip this one because you have it in your hands. This is the actual picture of one of those tablets that is described in the note of question number 12, or number 12. Uh, the front side has an enlargement of one of those tablets, and the back side of the sheet has one of those tablets looked at from all different angles. You see on the second page? It's the same tablet looked at from all different angles. Do you see what's in the middle of the tablet? The seal. And so when they impress the seal in the middle of the tablet, it, of course, effaced the writing that was where the seal was placed. And so what they did, they would write the whole document again on the back side of the tablet. So that the front side, the seal showed it was authentic, and the back side, you could read the whole, the whole document. And if you read the note, you'll notice that the Ten Commandments were written on both sides of the tablet. And so you would expect God's seal to be in the very center of his holy law. And at the center of the law is the Sabbath. Number 13. The little horn thought he could change God's, God's law. So must the mark of the beast have something to do with the law? If the beast is the same as the little horn. Sure. The man of sin is called the man of? Isn't that interesting? The little horn thinks he can change the law, and the man of sin is called the man of lawlessness. And the beast imposes its what? Its mark. So let me ask you, would the mark of the beast be the same as the little horn changing the law? And the same as the man of lawlessness attacking the law? Sure. These, uh, and then of course the beast imposes his mark and uh, the harlot gives the wine of her abominations or fornications. Yes. These are really four ways of saying the same thing. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, we have just a second to go to the charts at the end so I can explain them to you. Number 14. Both the seal of God and the mark of the beast are protective. If you receive the mark of the beast, you will be protected by the beast. You will be able to what? To buy and sell, and you will not be killed. On the other hand, if you receive the seal of God, you will be protected from the wrath of God. Would you rather be protected from the temporary wrath of the beast or from the wrath of God? No brainer, right? See, the beast says, hey, if you receive my mark, you'll be able to buy and sell, and you won't get killed. That's what the beast says. God says, hey, that's true. You know, if you receive the mark of the beast, you'll be able to buy and sell, and you won't get killed. But you'll receive my wrath, and I'll make your choice. It's a no-brainer, as far as I'm concerned. I'd rather die now and live later than live now and die later. Okay. Number 15, the dragon's anger in Revelation 12, 17 is directed against those who keep the what? See how the commandments and worship come through time and again, time and again, time and again in these prophecies, folks. The issues are whether you will worship God, the Creator, and whether you will keep His commandments because you love Him. Now, this anger 
is developed in chapters 13 and 14, as we already noticed. A close scrutiny of Revelation 13 reveals that Satan attacks the law by imposing what? The mark of the beast. And he attacks the true gift of prophecy by raising up a what? A false prophet. Unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss that anymore. Number 16. Jeremiah 25, 30-38 presents a fascinating picture of the day of God's wrath. On that day, the targets of God's wrath are primarily the shepherds. Well, shepherds and cry, roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. Why do you suppose the wrath of God is so fiercely revealed against the shepherds? Because they fed on the sheep, they led the sheep astray. Notice number 17. The apostle Peter spoke of these shepherds of the flock when he referred to the leaders of the Christian church, shepherd the what? The flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. In other words, you're supposed to oversee the sheep. You're supposed to take care of them. You're supposed to lead them. You're supposed to feed them. Peter then warned the shepherds to not lord it over the flock, but rather being what? Examples to them. We won't do number 18 because that's our next lesson. Number 19, when all is said and done, and God has created a new heavens and a new earth. God's people will come to worship the Lord from one new moon to another and from one Sunday to another. No. <laughs> that woke you up, didn't it? When will we worship God? Now listen, I'm going to, I'm going to mention this one point before we uh, come to number 20 and we do our quiz quickly. You know what's really exciting? If you look at the creation story in Genesis... And Adam and Eve didn't see God create anything. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that. Man was created last on the sixth day. God had created everything else. And interestingly enough, when God created Eve, he put Adam to sleep, so Adam didn't see the creation of Eve either. In other words, the only way that man could be certain that God was the creator was because God told him so. He had no absolute proof because he hadn't seen it. Now listen to this. This is the exciting part. I believe that when God create, recreates this earth, he's going to do it in seven days as well. And the reason why I believe that is because we're going to keep the Sabbath in honor of God creating anew the heavens and the earth. The Sabbath is going to be the sign of God's new creation. But you know what the exciting part is going to be? When we see God recreate this world in six days, his people are going to be alive. We will see God say, let there be light. We will see God say, let there be the firmament, which, which was all of these things were destroyed by the devastating plagues before the second coming of Christ. We will, we will see the Lord say, let there be dry land and bodies of water and let there be trees and flowers and plants. We will see the Lord say, you know, may the sun occupy its place and the moon occupy its place because they'll be moved out of their places according to Matthew 24 when Jesus comes. The powers of the heavens will be moved. So who knows what part of the universe the sun and the moon will go to. God will put them in their place again. We're watching. And that God says, uh, let the heavens produce uh, birds. The waters produce living creatures. And God will recreate the animals on the land. And that God will restore his people to Eden lost. 
And we will no longer have to live by faith. We will live by sight. Because our eyes will have seen. But to remember this, God is going to have us come. By the way, from new moon to moon, new moon means from month to month. The reason for that is because uh, the tree of life produces a new fruit every month. According to Revelation. So we'll come to eat of the tree every month. And we'll come to keep the Sabbath every week. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good time we've been able to spend tonight studying your word, studying this lesson. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us now as we return to our homes. And I especially ask that you will bless those people who uh, are learning these things for the first time. I ask that through your Holy Spirit you will give them the courage to step out and be counted with you as followers of yours and be willing to keep your Holy Sabbath. Not because they have to, but because they want to enjoy the fellowship with Jesus. We ask that you'll be with us as we return to our homes. We thank you for hearing our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.